You are listening to Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, with your host, Randy Sutton. Hello and welcome to another episode. This is going to be a special episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. This is going to be a special episode because the guest that is waiting for us in the interview room, uh, the topic that he is going to talk about is probably one of the most important issues facing the American law enforcement officer, and that is emotional health and mental health. We have seen in the profession a startling number of suicides. The estimate is that Roughly four to seven times the number of officers killed in the line of duty will actually take their own lives. And this is, this is not only startling, this is heartbreaking. Many of the emotional and mental health issues facing law enforcement officers is derived from the terrible stress that they see literally on a daily basis. When I talk about stress, I'm talking about cruelty that, that they literally are witness to. Uh, the horrible violence that they see, whether that violence be at homicide scenes or terrible car wrecks. But, you know, the difference is between a death scene that you would see as a civilian, as a, as a citizen. It, you may be heartbroken to find a loved one who's passed away or attending a funeral. But I can assure you it is very, very different in the field for a law enforcement officer because these officers are subjected to seeing violent death. And it's not just once or twice. Every officer, whether they're in a small community or in a large city, are going to be exposed to violence and to death and to cruelty and the worst that humanity has to offer. And it can be very debilitating. Now, add to that the stressors from the current sociological issues that are facing American police. You're seeing politicians turning their backs. You're seeing complicit media tearing down law enforcement officers, painting them with a broad brush of racism and excessive force. And you see the political environment has turned toxic against law enforcement. You even see the, the, the new president's choices for positions of authority have anti-law enforcement viewpoints. Well, what is that telling cops around the country? It's telling them, we don't value you. We don't value your lives. And this is what we're seeing across the country. So I invited the next guest onto this show because he is not only an expert on the topic, but he is revered in the law enforcement community. I was very, very uh, pleased to have him on the show, and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Because as I, I'm, I'm forced to admit to you that there is a major problem in law enforcement concerning the mental health of our officers. We want, as citizens, we want, as members of our communities, we want a healthy 
police agency. We want our officers to be healthy physically, healthy emotionally, healthy mentally, because this job is so incredibly demanding, because it is so fraught with danger, both physical and emotional, and we owe it to these men and women to do the very best that we can to support them, to let them know that there are people that care. I fully believe that the rhetoric that is coursing through the political environment and the media is just that rhetoric, that the vast majority of Americans believe in and trust in their law enforcement officers. And that, my friends, is very important to their mental and emotional health. So without further ado, I think we ought to retire to the interview room where we're going to hear this amazing guest. I want to tell you about an organization that I'm going to ask you to support. It's called the Wounded Blue, and you can see it at thewoundedblue.org. They are the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. I am the founder of that organization and the national director. What do they do? They provide peer support for injured and disabled officers all over the United States. They have a team of dedicated police officers, all who have been shot or stabbed or beaten or run over or faced psychological trauma, and they know exactly what these men and women are going through today. It's free, of course, because this is a national nonprofit charitable organization. They don't take any fees. Nobody makes any money on this deal. This is just about helping those men and women who have sacrificed so much for their communities and their country. Check it out at thewoundedblue.org. Your support is is really needed. These men and women uh, have been abused in ways you can't even imagine. In fact, if you got a moment, go to Amazon.com and look at our documentary film called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. You will be shocked. Check it out, thewoundedblue.org, and support these men and women. Thank you. If you are a law enforcement officer, if you have been a law enforcement officer, or if you support law enforcement officers, I want to tell you about an amazing event that's going to be coming up this coming October, October 30th, here in Las Vegas. Now, if you've been listening to the show, you've heard about the Brothers in Blue Bash. It was actually supposed to be held October of last year, but, of course, with COVID, it was not allowed, and it was also going to be held in March of this year, but because of the restrictions, we decided that we are going to change the date and make sure that it's going to take place, and it's going to be in October. Now, what is the Brothers in Blue Bash? It is the largest celebration of unity and pride in American law enforcement. It is going to be an amazing event. Dinner, it's going to have entertainment, you're going to see amazing awards, and it gives law enforcement a place and a time to celebrate the great work that they do. If you're a supporter of law enforcement, you really want to be a part of this as well. You're going to meet some fascinating people, hear some great speakers, and have a great time. Dinner, cocktails, you name it. The Brothers in Blue Bash here in Las Vegas. Go to Facebook, The Brothers in Blue Bash. If you have any questions, contact me, Randy, at thewoundedblue.org. What does being a patriotic American 
and shopping have in common? You're scratching your head, right? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you about a new platform to do your shopping, a platform that supports Americans who support their own country. And we've been living in a time when trust and appreciation of law enforcement is pretty much at an all-time low. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Fellow Americans, you've watched for decades as radical Marxists have systematically taken over some of our nation's most cherished institutions. And like us, we're pretty sure you're not happy about any of it. But this is the America we now find ourselves in. AmericaOutloud.com is fighting back with one of the fastest growing conservative media networks in the world featuring some of the nation's most influential experts and commentators. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Today in the interview room of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement is a law enforcement icon. His name is Kevin Gilmartin. He has spent 20 years as a police officer and during his tenure, supervised the Behavioral Sciences Unit and the Hostage Negotiations Team. Dr. Gilmartin holds a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arizona and had his works published by the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI. He's also a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. He's a guest instructor of the FBI Law Enforcement Academy in Quantico, uh, and also uh, at uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. He's a faculty member of the FBI, FBI Law Enforcement Executive Development Institute and is retained by several uh, federal law enforcement agency critical response teams. He is also the author of one of the most important books in law enforcement, and that is Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. Thank you for having me, Randy. It's great talking to you. It is always great talking to you. So first of all, let's, I'd like my, my guests, you've been a guest on this show before, but it's been a while. And so 
I'd like to, if you would, tell a little bit about your, your law enforcement background and what caused you to take up the entirely different mantle uh, of that of a clinical psychologist. Well, you know, when I got into law enforcement, that was my interest from the very beginning. It, it became apparent to me, and we're talking like in the 1970s right now, that men and women would enter law enforcement idealistic, committed, physically fit, enthusiastic, and the job just destroyed them. It destroyed them across several dimensions. And it became apparent to me in those very early years in the 1970s that virtually nothing was taking place to assist them. It, it seemed, it was almost as if uh, it wasn't even recognized as a problem. Then a few kind of outliers started popping up and I got to observe them. Uh, I got, probably the best known person was Dr. Marty Reisner out at LAPD. He, he brought traditional psychological services into the law enforcement uh, world at LAPD. And uh, he kind of started a trend. A couple of other police departments around the country in the 1970s would have a clinician or a chaplain who was doing good work, but it became real apparent to me in looking at it and that, that these were like islands, totally disconnected from each other, but the need continued to grow. Uh, I saw it with friends of mine firsthand, people who you worked with or went to the police academy with, who had happy lives, who had stable families, who, who were physically fit, and within five years did, did not even resemble the same man or woman that they were five years previously. And there was just a tremendous amount of pain that was happening in, in their lives. And it, it sort of became uh, an interest of mine, more so than any of the other psychological areas. Uh, a lot of psychologists were, you know, they were doing pre-employment psychological screening. They were doing criminal profiling and assisting the hostage negotiation teams. And that, that was all interesting and stimulating, but it was just painful to watch people go out and try to help other people and, and have their own lives get destroyed. And so that, that kind of became the focus of, you know, my professional and to a great extent, my personal life. You know, and looking at it from a historical perspective, you know, that first group of, of mental health professionals in the 1970s, they kind of set down the, the way the field developed, even to this day. And it was the bringing of traditional psychological services into the police departments and, and, the, and the fire departments also. But they were, they were bringing in traditional psychological services, individual counseling, sometimes group counseling, awareness of substance abuse, very, very important issues. But they were being done, you know, each department was an island unto itself. The 1980s was, was a very different time. I, I, I look at the 1980s as two things happened that shaped the field of wellness for police that still exists to this day. The first was in 1982, the Air Florida disaster occurred in the Potomac River. And Jeff Mitchell pretty much started the critical incident stress response movement with the response to the first responders there. And a few years after that, uh, Jim Reese at the FBI Academy held the first symposium on psychological services in, in our nation. He brought all those 
islands of independent practitioners together to Quantico for a week. And the field really began at that point of wellness and psychological services. And it's grown tremendously to this day where when you, when you think of just about any law enforcement agency, you're going to think of psychological services and peer support and, and providing clinical assistance. But you know, my bias is I think we have missed an, an entire field of wellness. We've missed an entire field of, of psychological assistance for law enforcement that still goes unaddressed and has become the point of much of the contention that's going on in our country today with a lot of the anti-police rhetoric that police are being bombarded with. And, and that, that's the kind of the area of wellness that, that interests me. And, and you know, we, we, we can chat about that tonight, hopefully. Absolutely, we can. So let's talk about, um, you were an active duty officer for, for 20 years. You had, a, you had a full law enforcement career. I, I, I was actively involved in law enforcement, but my, my, my duties were primarily in, in the behavioral sciences area. You know, I, I wanted to have you think that I um, have some rich history of being a motor officer and a SWAT team officer and all those <laughs> other things. I, I did not. You know, it, uh, my area was defined early in my career, and I, I stayed with that. You know, I was, you know, in the hostage negotiations area and the, uh, investigations area. But um, I, I would have to tell you that my interests, even then to this day, have been in trying to find out what's happening to good cops and how can we help them live more productive and happy lives. And you wrote a book, which is probably the most well-read book in uh, dealing with this topic in law enforcement. Uh, many academies, uh, it's required reading for every single police officer in many police academies. And it's uh, uh, used in training cops at different at different times in their career, emotional survival for law enforcement. Uh, if you would just talk about the, the creation of that work of, of, uh, of uh, that book that was written and, and how that has impacted uh, the, uh, the law enforcement community. Well, you know, Randy, I don't think anybody is as surprised at the legs that that book has gotten as much as I am. Uh, I, I'm actually shocked when I think of how many million copies of that book have gone into the marketplace? Um, it was it was kind of an afterthought, because my my presentation skills are in teaching, standing up in front of a whole bunch of angry, pissed off cops who don't want to be in the training, and have them listen, and then take a look at themselves in the mirror and maybe produce some change in their life. That was that was my goal, and I did it in a. Um, in an oral presentation, groups of cops from 50 to, you know, 5,000. And, um, and I, I felt like kind of a vaudeville performer going from city to city, standing up in front of these cops talking. And one day, a guy who um, worked at the behavioral sciences unit with me, he said, you know, you need to write a book. I said, I, I don't, I don't want to write a book. I'm not a writer. I hate writing. He said, you need to write a book because this information that you're teaching is gonna die when you die. I said, boy, that's a pleasant thought. <laughs> I mean, that's, he <laughs> yeah. says, but don't that's you think it's reality? <laughs> he says, he says lot, he, and I always remember, he said, graveyards are full of books that should have been written. He's a pretty insightful guy. And so I sat down and I, what I just did was took the, the model 
that we were presenting orally and I put it in writing. And when it, when it got into the marketplace, it just exploded and it was selling by the tens of thousands. And it was amazing to me because all we really did was we took the journey that good cops go through and presented it in terms that they could understand. We didn't hide it in a bunch of psychological rhetoric and a bunch of theoretical conceptualizations. It was, this is what happens to cops when you go out and you do your job. And the feedback that we got was from the cops and we get it every day. We get emails from people uh, saying, you know, what you made me do is think about how this has affected my life and it has, uh, I'm doing business differently right now. And that's been the most gratifying aspect of that book. You know, we have a new version of it coming out, a revision, but the basic model doesn't change. And I'll, I'll tell you what that basic model pretty much is. I know you and I, being friends for 30 years, have talked about it, but it, when you teach a, a person to be a police officer, you, you have to teach them how to practice officer safety which means you have to teach them how to go into every situation with a very elevated level of alertness, a sense of engagement of what's going on in the environment. And good cops do this. They're very perceptive and highly alert people while they're on duty. But we teach officer safety as if it has no consequence. It has a huge consequence because what the police officer is doing is they are putting themselves in this elevated level of alertness, which is a biological state of hypervigilance. The sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system engages. The officer's quick thinking, they're alert, they're perceptive, and they remain in that state while they're on duty. Well, that's a very necessary state and it makes them safer and it makes them tactically in a superior position to survive. The problem is, that the autonomic nervous system has two branches to it. And when the pendulum swings into elevated alertness of the sympathetic branch, when that law enforcement professional leaves their job, they'll have a homeostatic reaction where the parasympathetic branch engages. And that's detachment, isolation, a depressive-like view of the world. And that starts typifying the personal life of the officer. So on duty, they're quick thinking, they're engaged, they're perceptive, but off duty, they're detached, they're isolated and withdrawing from social relationships. And this was beyond just being tired. And many cops would tell us they get off duty and they're tired, they would use that term. And we would have to tell them, no, you're not tired. If you wanna get tired, go dig a ditch, you'll be tired. You'll have lactic acid in your muscles. You'll be dehydrated. Hydrate, rest, you'll be fine. What you're dealing with is really almost neurotransmitter depletion. You've dropped into this depressive type state and you stop interacting with the people who are foundational to your life. You stop playing catch with your kids. You'd stop going out for a walk with your significant other. You stop going to the gym. So it became real apparent that the officer started having high energy investment in their policing role and low energy investment in their personal role. And that was the first domino to drop over. You know, you, let, let, me, let me just interrupt you for a moment because uh, this is such a critical, critical issue. I, I remember distinctly uh, listening to you when I was a young officer 
and um, hearing something that really resonated with me, and that was your your uh, you you called it the Eusta the the Eusta syndrome. Go into that for just a moment because I think well, that's fascinating. The use the Eusta syndrome comes off what you conceptualize as a roller coaster. We would talk about the biological roller coaster. When the officer was at the top of the roller coaster in the sympathetic branch, they're making life and death decisions. They're, they're thinking splits, peripheral visions elevated. They're, they're really doing a good job. But then they get off duty and they drop in this depressive-like state and they stop doing things. I would ask them, I would say, how, how many of you in here like to fish? You know, and half the group would raise their hands. And I say, yeah, I love to fish also. But can I ask you a question? When was the last time you went fishing? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm studying for the sergeant's test and I, I just got this new assignment. No, no, I don't want to hear that. I want you to tell me when the last time you went fishing was. Well, tell you the truth, Doc, it's, it's, uh, it's been about a year, but I used to do it all the time. You know, I used to ride my Harley all the time. When I was in the academy, I used to be able to knock out 30 push-ups. And I used to, and it became real apparent that we were having people in their latter 20s and 30s describing their personal life in the past tense. And they were telling you about the things they used to do. And these were huge psychological injuries to the, to the officer's personal life. Their resiliency was reduced because that I used to syndrome was actually the glue of resiliency in their life, their social relationships, their recreational relationships, their spiritual relationships, and those were all placed on the back burner. And it became real apparent in officers when they start fantasizing about retirement. You know, we're talking about people who are 34 and they're telling you, in 17 years, I'm the hell out of here. It's KMA time. I'm going to retire. And I'm, I'm moving to Florida. And I'm going to play golf every day. And I'm going to Montana. And I'm going to fly fish. And it was almost as if they saw themselves as captive to this roller coaster that they did not understand. And I said, don't, don't tell me what you're going to do 17 years from now when you retire. Tell me what you're going to do tonight. Tell me what you're going to do tonight. I guarantee you that, that every law enforcement officer and their significant other that is hearing this right now is recognizing themselves or their, or their coworkers in exactly that light. And you know, Randy, what's so damaging is it doesn't just stop with the psychological and uh, social damage of the Iusta syndrome at the bottom. It starts into a very specific medical disease that the officer is experiencing at that point. And we, we can speak to that, but the first injury is the withdrawal from a broader dimensions to their life. They become extremely competent at the policing role. They're, they're a very good detective. They're a very good narc. They're a very good motor officer. And they, they put their heart and soul into it. But at the bottom of the roller coaster, they're just not coaching Little League anymore. They're not doing CrossFit anymore. They're, they're not getting out camping anymore. And that was the first huge injury that I saw in, in our law enforcement people. And I saw that first just anecdotally with my coworkers, but professionally, I began seeing it in my research and my travels. And it, it was not something unique to our department. It became universal to, I saw it across the country. 
And it was astounding. And one of the things that we forget, when you're at the police academy, they're putting a great deal of emphasis on physical fitness. Now, they tend to put the emphasis on physical fitness because of tactical operational need. You know, the capacity to have dynamic strength and to be able to do ground fighting and to take people into custody, all, all very necessary things. But I think what was missed is that when you put somebody into that depressive-like state after shift each day, you're producing a cortisol-related disorder that leads to two things. It leads to, well, let me, let me explain first before I get into it. When you're in an elevated level of alertness, you have that adrenal cortical stimulation. That's, that's that energy good cops feel on the street when they're doing police work. A cop knows what it feels like to be a cop. I can take a cop from Mississippi and one from Montana and one from Michigan, and they've never been to each other's state, but they know what it feels like to walk up on a car at three o'clock in the morning and to walk into harm's way. They know what that sense of sensory awareness and alertness feels like. That's, that's, I wrote a paper on this many years ago called The Brotherhood of Biochemistry. It was so long ago, it was gender biased in the language, but it should say brotherhood and sisterhood of, of biochemistry because cops know what it feels like to be a cop. That elevated level of alertness, however, is sending adrenal cortical stimulation to the liver. And when that cortisol hits the liver, it releases blood glucose. That blood glucose is the energy the cop feels while they're out doing their police work. That's that sense of energy. But what's also happening is the pancreas is kicking out insulin, which captures a significant amount of this blood glucose and it holds it back in reserve and it infuses it in the lipid cells around the abdominal area. It's kind of like when you're going out in the field and you might be in a tactically dangerous situation, you carry extra magazines in case the firefighter or the, or, or the event needs, needs to be continued. Your body does the same thing. It infuses glucose into the fat cells around the abdominal area to be ready if the stress continues. Now, we all know that this happens to cops from the very beginning. Police officers, no matter what shape they're in at the police academy, will tend to gain weight in that first three or four years of, of police work. And we just ignore this. We joke about it. You know, we, we joke about donuts and ha ha, I got my donut belly and, you know, that's my Budweiser belly. It's much more serious than that because the glucose is being infused into the fat cell. The cop's waist size starts increasing, even if they're, they have not changed dietarily, it will increase. That's the direct response to stress. A bear, for example, pending hibernation, as the winter approaches, a bear is twice as fat at the end of October as the bear is at the beginning of October, even if all food is withheld from the bear, because the bear needs that fat to survive the threat of the winter. A bear that does not hibernate will starve, that does not get fat, will starve to death, will not be able to hibernate. So we look at our cops and we kind of joke about this 175 pound physically fit specimen at the police academy who is now 210 pounds and we think it's nutrition only. We don't talk about the effects of chronic exposure to adrenal cortical stimulation. The problem is after about five or seven years, 
the, the glucose can no longer be infused into the fat cell because the glucose receptor shuts down. And this is where the physicians out of Reno started studying heart disease and diabetes and police. What happens is that glucose now remains in the bloodstream and the blood glucose level starts elevating. And the police officer is marching towards type two diabetes. And it's a direct relationship. When you teach somebody street survival, you have to teach them emotional survival or you're going to not only damage them psychologically, you're going to start damaging them biologically. And we do this to police officers across the spectrum. So to me, although we're doing everything right in terms of peer support and critical incident intervention and providing confidential counseling to police, we're still totally ignoring this biological process. So we're taking police officers after 20 or 25 years of service and their life is getting cut short by diseases of adaptation. That's the body's adapting to the stress of policing every day. Now, isn't it true, Kevin, that, that there is a, a, a uh, uh, there have been studies done on the life expectancy of a police officer once they retire, and that life expectancy is is very very much different than their civilian counterpart. Well, you know, there's been lots of studies done, Randy, and they they fall across the spectrum. But I have, and they also shortened life expectancy. I don't know any study that says police officers live 10 years longer than the average person does, which if you stop and think about it, that's what it should say, because we are not hiring people who are bringing in pre-existing conditions. When we hire a police officer, they go through a complete battery of psychological tests. They go through a complete battery of medical examinations, all pre-employment, however. And then we put them into this process some studies have found uh, as a lowered life expectancy by 12 years. Some find less, some find more. But one of the things when you look at the operational movement towards a reduced life expectancy, the first big red flag is incremental weight gain. And it gets ignored by police departments. And one of my most difficult tasks is when I'm speaking to police leadership on this concept, they always seem to want to bring it back to operational skill sets. And I said, I'm talking about resiliency. A police officer has to be able to perform. They have to be able to make decisions that are split second decisions. And they can't do that, one, if they've entered into obesity. And two, they can't do that if they have a sleep disorder. And in many of our police officers, as, as many as, as, as little over 80% of our police officers report inadequate sleep. So now, if you stop and think about these two big red flags, incremental weight gain in police officers and to sleep disorder, it's a disaster waiting to happen. It's an absolute disaster. And I don't know, when I look at training curriculums at police academies, I very rarely find those two things talked about. We'll bring in mental health professionals who will talk about stress, which is good. And they'll talk about going to see, you know, the counselor or the employee assistance program, which is excellent. We'll have critical incident stress debriefing teams and peer support teams, which is terribly, terribly important. But I'll go to these conferences and I'll very rarely find a fitness coordinator as part of the major team for helping for helping police officers retain resiliency. Well, and there's another factor too. You know, the, and believe it or not, 
uh, for the listeners, um, the salary, there's a salary component here. There are, I mean, there's a huge disparity in the way law enforcement officers are paid across the country. And, and so if, if you're, if you're making $35,000 as a police officer, what do you have to do in order to make ends meet? You have to work all these extra jobs, all the security jobs, the, the road construction jobs, the, 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 so it doesn't that have an effect on the sleep as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I can speak about sleep as if it's some idealistic issue, but the realities are there's some man or woman trying to feed their children and put a roof over their heads. And we hire people with work ethics. And when you hire somebody with a work ethic and you put them into a situation where work is available, they will tend to work. And many of them, many of them will work themselves to death, literally. But I, I know the examples you're talking to me here about, Randy, about the underserved police, underpaid police officer. Those are tragedies. But I have also seen that that work syndrome occur in police officers who are making close to $200,000 a year, where they will never turn down an off-duty employment. They will never turn down an extra duty assignment. Um, and God bless them, you, you, you feel, you, you respect their work ethic. But I will tell you, a work ethic is an attribute. It's a strength. But a strength taken to excess becomes a liability. And one of the liability issues to me is with sleep disorder. When you do reaction time studies, strictly reaction time study, I know we we have a lot of what I'm going to call pseudo reaction time studies, where we'll take a police officer and we'll put the police officer in a video confrontation against a civilian in a shoot don't shoot situation and the police officer always prevails they do better than the civilian does in those studies but those are not true reaction time studies because those are studies of police subject matter the police officers know what their lethal force policy is the police officer also has muscle memory to the weapon that they're using in a true reaction time study, it's, it's occupationally culture-free and culture-fair. It's, for example, showing shapes and handing the civilian and handing the police officer a laser. And the experimenter would announce the color, um, would announce, for example, red triangles. And they have to hit all the red triangles with the laser. Or they would say motion. And they have to look at all the targets and hit the targets that are moving with the laser. Police officers make 600 to 800% more judgment errors and reaction time errors, strictly because of sleep deprivation. That's That's a factor. That's a frightening statistic. It's an absolutely frightening statistic. Now, now take this statistic, Randy, and it's very, very frequently been researched on pure reaction time with police. Take that and put this into a profession that has to police a society that has been fraught with institutionalized racism for 400 years. People of color have been denied housing, they've been denied opportunity, they've been denied education, they've been denied employment, they've been denied hope at the same level that that Caucasian people, European people have, have received it. Now the cop didn't do this. Hell, the cop had nothing to do with this. This had this has been a couple of centuries in the making, but because of that institutionalized racism, the risk factor, 
of that police officer at three o'clock in the morning being in a potentially very confrontational situation, it isn't going to occur, and I, I hate to make this sound, it isn't going to occur with some wealthy Jewish orthodontist at three o'clock in the morning. It isn't, that's probably statistically not likely, but it is likely to occur with a young man of color who has been the victim of institutionalized racism and hopelessness. And now the cop has to make a split second decision and the cop makes the wrong decision. And we can all jump on that cop and everybody gets to scream racial bias and everybody gets to scream that this is institutionalized racism and perceptual um, racism. And I'm saying, yes, it is, but it's not the cop. We're dealing with the end product of a racist society that the police officer has to deal with. You know, early in my, in my experience in law enforcement, I was speaking to a, um, a civil rights activist, a person in our community who was a very, um, very outspoken um, member of the African-American community about civil rights. And he, um, I asked him, I said, do you think police and the criminal justice system are inherently racist. And I expected him to say yes. And he said, no. I said, no, he said, no. I think it's the last stop in a totally racist society. He said, I think it's the last stop in a society where equity does not exist. Uh, a young man of color goes out and commits a homicide and the police officer arrests him. He's not arresting him because he's a person of color. He's arresting them because he committed a homicide. And, but it's easy to blame the police officer. And right now we're dealing with such a confrontational situation and everybody gets a free pass. Every, all the all, people can hire commercials for the Super Bowl demanding social justice. And the, the brunt of it is always, it's the police officer's fault. Now, when we're dealing with a society that the largest cause of death of a young African-American male is homicide, 90% of which are at the hands of another young African-American male. That's not the police officer causing that. And when the police officer goes out and makes the arrest, that's not prima facie evidence of the police officer's racial bias. It's prima facie evidence of a systemically racist society. But this police officer is walking point and we cannot have police officers walk that point if they cannot perform the job. And an officer who is showing incremental weight gain and sleep deprivation cannot physically do the job. And this is every bit as much a part of wellness and resiliency as counseling is, as critical incident debriefings are, and yet we ignore them. I walk into police departments across the United States and I, I look at about a 40% obesity factor in our police. And I'm not trying to come on like some fitness guru. I'm, I'm a psychologist, but I also know what the research shows that if we get, for example, people to do 20 minutes a day of moderate physical exercise, we reduce depression as effectively as if they're on antidepressant medication and counseling. That's a Duke University study. That's so, incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So we'll have police departments that'll have behavioral sciences units. They'll have departmental psychologists. They'll, they'll have critical incident teams, all wonderful assets. We must have those. But I very rarely find a police department that will end each shift 
with police officers walking on a treadmill for 20 minutes. And that will reduce depression as effectively as if they were in counseling and receiving antidepressant medication. Are there, are there any police agencies that are forward-looking enough to understand this and implement such things? Yeah, there are. There are, but they're far and few between. And they're, 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 they are because they have insightful leaders who care deeply about their men and women of their agencies. There are departments that permit and some even require officers to exercise on duty because they see it as part of the wellness program. They don't just see it as part of the operational fitness part, which is necessary. You're on the SWAT team, you, you gotta be able to run, jump and take down a bad guy. But if you're a detective and you're working cases all day long, instead of going home in this detached fatigue state where you're gonna not talk to your spouse and you're gonna ignore your kids, if we know that getting on a treadmill and walking briskly for 20 minutes takes care of that, that needs to be mandated. That doesn't need to be uh, a, a choice. I, I have chiefs that will say, well, we have a gym and uh, we let our cops exercise call load permitting. I said, chief, when is the call load ever permitting? <laughs> when is that? You know, when is that going to happen? Do you know, chief, you don't just hand a firearm to somebody and say, oh, you know how to, you know how to use it. You maintain that. You make them go out to the range and demonstrate competencies and you document that so, sometimes more than once a year. Some agencies do two, three times a year. You fire on the range. Yet I very rarely, if ever, see police departments that mandate that transition from the work from the work role to the home role goes through the gym. Mental health for police officers goes through the gym. It doesn't go through the psychologist's office. And I say that as a psychologist, I, treating cops for many decades, I have had many police officers change their life by, by becoming physically active. Also talking to the psychologist, also going back to church, also taking their family camping, but it starts with activity. And the bottom of that roller coaster where the Iusta syndrome occurs is just this disengagement. You know, I'll give an example. I was out in the Bay Area and I, there was about 20 police agencies threw together and asked me to speak to a large, large group of police officers. And we filled this major auditorium. And on a break, a young, a young woman comes up to me and she engages me and she goes, um, Dr. Kilmartin, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my marriage. And she starts crying. And I said, what's wrong? She goes, my, my husband, who I love dearly, we have two children. He comes home from work and all he does is sit in, in the living room by himself. And he gets on his handheld device and starts doing something on the internet and starts playing video games. And he's just tuning out. He's just the, the digital version of the Iusta syndrome. And um, he won't socialize with my friends. He gets angry. I said, well, is, is he here? Is he here today? He says, no, no. He thought this kind of training's bullshit and he wasn't going to come to it. And, and I, I just, I have to tell you, that set me off <laughs> because um, one, I'm not a cheap date. And his chief of police was putting money out to bring me there to speak. And that was training money that was there to help their officers. And by darn, that should have been a mandatory training. And that cop shouldn't have gotten a choice because if he valued that kind of training, he wouldn't be in the situation he's in. And he's not, and, and his, his wife continued to cry and said, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my marriage. And in my head, I was thinking, 
very sadly that you, you probably are. And that's another police family casualty. We wouldn't put police officers into the street to handle operations without giving them operational skill sets. But we send them home every night with an emotion, without emotional survival skill sets. And the casualties are good marriages that end, families that get lost, children that get alienated from, from their parents. And we can do better with that. And I think cops don't solve this problem because they don't know what the problem is. And that's what I think that book, Emotional Survival, did. I think it spelled out what the problem was, and it gave them some skills to, to break the cycle. My area of attention right now is this area of heart disease, diabetes, and stroke that also reduces depression and reaction time. You know, um, this happens in any hypervigilant profession. I had a state department of corrections director one time tell me that they had done a wellness survey and 80% of their employees gained significant weight in their first year of employment. And they were still thinking about it in nutritional terms. They were not thinking at it in terms of adrenal cortical stress terms. And you just shake your head. And, and in law enforcement right now, the cops are on the front line, they're being beaten up, they're being attacked, and we have to give them every skill to be able to make the correct decision when they have a hundredth of a second to do it. And they can't do that by ignoring these biological markers. Well, we're gonna, unfortunately, gonna have to leave it there um, because we're running out of time. But one thing that I, I really wanna stress to the listeners, um, this book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, is, um, should be required reading for everyone, not just the beginning of their career, but throughout their career. So I urge you to go to amazon.com and look up either Dr. Kevin Gilmartin or Emotional Survivor, Survival for Law Enforcement. It could literally save your life. And uh, Dr. Gilmartin, I really wanna thank you so much for taking the time to join us here uh, at Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement and your commitment to the men and women uh, has spanned decades and you're still touching many, many lives. Well, Randy, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, my friend. Till the next time. Till the next time. This is Oris from oldguytalkstome.com here to talk to you about something most men don't want to talk about. Erectile dysfunction. It robs you of your emotional and physical intimacy. And when you do talk about it, when you go see your doctor, well, you find out that those treatments that you hear about are cost prohibitive, costing thousands of dollars. But I'm here to tell you that there is now a new option, something that you can use in the privacy of your own home at a fraction of the cost that puts out the same acoustic wave signal as those expensive in-office devices do. Find out what one happy user has to say about it. Hey, everybody, I want to talk to you real quick about something that not a lot of us like to talk about, uh, ED, or erectile dysfunction. Um, I'm 62 years old. I've had a version of it for the last 13 years at least and tried all the regular stuff, uh, Viagra, Cialis. Worked fine in the beginning, but uh, lately it's not been working so well. And then I come across this thing called the Phoenix. This machine is amazing. Already seen massive results. Uh, it's gonna make you like you're 20 years old again. Give it a shot. What do you do now? Go to www.oldguytalks.com backslash wounded, talks with an S, 
and get that information in order now. Be sure to use the promo code WOUNDED50, all caps on the WOUNDED, and get $200 off this limited time promotion. Remember, with every purchase, a donation will be made to the Wounded Blue. Don't wait, don't hesitate, don't procrastinate. Do it now! Do you like coffee? Well, I bet you do. And I have got the coffee for you. It's called Law Dog Coffee. LawDogCoffee.com It is, first of all, it's phenomenal coffee. Secondly, it goes to support uh, a great organization, the Wounded Blue, which helps injured and disabled law enforcement officers. So this coffee is Costa Rican coffee. It is roasted in a family roasting company that has been in business for over 90 years. And I got to tell you, it's delicious. Now, if, if, if I didn't believe that this coffee was so good, I, I couldn't get out up here and lie to you, okay? It, does, it, it really, truly is. And here's, here's the best part. It's so convenient. You, it, it, it's a subscription coffee. So you go online, lawdogcoffee.com. And you order a pound or two pounds, whoever much coffee you drink. They got some really cool different flavors. And uh, and it is it is amazing coffee. Go to LawDogCoffee.com. Order yours now. I promise you, if you're a coffee drinker, you are going to love it. And the profits go to a good cause. So check it out. LawDogCoffee.com. Tastes so good, it ought to be illegal. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. End of Watch with Randy Sutton. Each week here on Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement, we pay our respects to the men and women of the law enforcement profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice and given their lives in the line of duty. I have two names to read today. Agent Juan Rosado Lopez, Puerto Rico Police Department. Agent Juan Rosado Lopez died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Agent Rosado Lopez has served with the Puerto Rico Police Department for 23 years and was assigned to the Caguas Highway Division. Agent Juan Rosado Lopez Puerto Rico Police Department, Puerto Rico, end of watch, Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021. The second is Patrolman Darian Jarrett of the New Mexico State Police. Patrolman Darian Jarrett was shot and killed while conducting a traffic stop of a known offender 
on I-10 near milepost 101 in Luna County. The driver of the vehicle was the subject of an ongoing narcotics investigation and was en route to Las Cruces to participate in a drug deal. Patrolman Jarrett was assisting members of the United States Homeland Security Investigations when he stopped the vehicle. The man opened fire on Patrolman Jarrett, fatally wounding him before fleeing in the pickup truck. Other officers began pursuing the vehicle along I-10. At one point, the subject stopped and shot at officers before fleeing again. As the vehicle entered Las Cruces, the vehicle struck spike strips and a Las Cruces officer then conducted a precision immobilization technique successfully stopped the truck. As the truck came to a stop, the subject exited the vehicle, exchanged shots with the Las Cruces officer wounding him. Las Cruces officer and other responding officers returned fire and killed the suspect. Patrolman Jarrett served with the New Mexico State Police for five and a half years. He is survived by his expectant wife and three children. Patrolman Darian Jarrett, New Mexico State Police, New Mexico. End of watch Thursday, February 4th, 2021. May they rest in peace. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement here on the America Out Loud Network. I want to thank you for taking the time to spend your time with me and hear about all things that are affecting the American law enforcement officer. Once again, I'm going to remind you to support thewoundedblue.org. I love some hot coffee. Go to lawdogcoffee.com and uh, the Brothers in Blue Bash. Those are the those are the uh, things I would love for you to take a look at and support and come to and join in because the men and women of American law enforcement need your support. Check it all out. Thanks again for taking the time to spend it with me here on America Out Loud on Blue Lives Radio. We'll see you again soon. 